0: If you have the driving passion and the belief and the vision, you can in a scrappy way, pull together what you need to address anything.
1: Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. I'm thrilled to introduce you to today's guest, Jean Case, the CEO of the Case Impact Network and the Case Foundation, and Chairman of National Geographic Society. Jean is also the author of Be Fearless, Five Principles for a Life of Breakthroughs and Purpose and a Pioneering Philanthropist and Innovator. As we'll see, Jean is a passionate believer in the power of business to do good, and she's a strong advocate for the importance of embracing a more fearless approach. Welcome, Jean.
0: Thanks, Sam. It's so great to be with you. I've really been looking forward to this
1: so we saw you two years ago at J.P. Morgan Chase. You came in to talk about your book, Be Fearless, which we were publishing at the time. And it's remarkable that since then the world has gone through so much incredible change, of course. But I think the book is as relevant as ever. And so I would love to have you reflect on those ideas and why you think they still are so important.
0: You are so right. The world really has changed. And It's very true that the book is as relevant, but the other thing that's happened in the last year is we've just seen amazing new Be Fearless stories. And I must tell you, you know, as the year sort of went forward, I realized when I was talking about Be Fearless that I had to put the caveat in that, you know, just as I say in the book, fear is in us for a very real reason, right? And so it was a little Uncomfortable in the beginning of COVID to have a book called Be Fearless when in fact it was appropriate that all of us take measures, you know, to to take care of ourselves. But obviously, the kind of fearlessness that I talk about in the book is the fearlessness that you know looks past what's right in front of you and sees a different future. And clearly that's what we've needed in this last year. And we've seen tons of new innovations and different ways of working and everything else. So I think fearlessness is alive even in this period when we have a lot of natural fear for good reason.
1: Yeah, you've talked about why you wrote the book in the first place, the research that went behind it and what you really wanted you know, regular people to know about being innovative. And I'll go through these five principles and it'd be great to sort of unpack them and talk about them. You talk about one, making big bets and making history. Two, being bold and taking risks. Three, making failure matter. And I think those will be great stories. Four, reaching beyond your bubble. And certainly that has an interesting twist to it now that we actually are living in bubbles. So what can we do about that? And five, let urgency conquer fear. So let's start with identifying a goal. You know, how do people go and find the things that they might want to really work on? I think a lot of people can relate to right now being under a lot of stress, maybe wanting to move forward. Uh, with their careers or with their personal lives, how can you start thinking about a goal?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because what is not well understood about entrepreneurs, for instance, is that in most cases, they're really solving a problem when they start a new company. And in most cases, it's a problem that they've either dealt with or been up close to and it turns out that's the case with change makers around the world. And so no matter who you are, you know, I think every day as you go through your life, you see things and you say, you know, somebody ought to do something about that. Well, maybe you're that person to do something about that. And we find that the most effective change makers and entrepreneurs and innovators have had, you know, direct real world experience. With either the challenge or the opportunity that they're chasing. So I don't see it as put some abstract goal out there. You know, I say, be intentional, look around. What has sort of gnawed at you that you've thought there's a better way? And what role could you play in devising that better way?
1: You call it start where you are. What's a good example of that? You know, tell us about someone who actually took that approach to changing things.
0: Sure. Well, I'll tell you two stories. One's in the book. And the only reason I want to touch on that is I opened the book with that story on purpose, and it's Start Right Where You Are. And it is a woman I knew who was a family counselor. And it was when the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were really raging. And we realized we didn't have nearly the capacity in the United States to deal with the mental health resources needed for families who were really having a tough time because of that. You know, in some cases, moms and dads were facing three or four tours of duty. You know, the family was highly stressed. So she started doing, you know, pro bono hour here and there to try to, you know, pick up some of the gap. And she asked some of her friends and then she had a really big idea. She thought, what if we could create an entire network of doctors all around the United States committed to this and call it give an hour. And that's exactly what she did. She was working as a sole practitioner. She didn't even have an assistant. <laughs> and she put together this fabulous network thousands and thousands of doctors around the United States and mental health workers. To close that gap, her work was so extraordinary that she was ultimately named by Time Magazine as one of the most, uh, one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And I knew her. She called me when she had this idea, and I describe in the book going into her office, and she had no organizational background. She had never, you know, really, she's really a sole practitioner working in a small office. And yet her vision really came out of the problem she was trying to address. And then more recently during COVID, one of the stories I really love is, you know, there's a female doctor who was working in the emergency room. And if you remember, PPE was the equipment was a real stressor for our people on the front lines, and it was for her. And she would come home to her husband and she had two kids and just say, you know, I'm just worried about putting you at risk, putting, you know, all of us at risk. He was an engineer. And so one night, their dining room table became basically a a working table, and they devised a way to sanitize the medical masks for reuse. Mm. And it was such a breakthrough. They were able to find a way that 80,000 masks a day could be sanitized and reused. And, you know, those kind of stories are great examples of someone living a problem and saying there's got to be a way we can solve for this.
1: I love that. I mean, that is great examples of that start where you are concept. Not only seeing a problem that's so close to you, but having the skills to do something about it. You know, having that core intrinsic, not just the idea, but being able to try to get a hold of the problem and then recruit others around you.
0: Right. And I think that's the key, Sam, because I think what holds a lot of us back is we can say, oh, I don't have the skill I need in this area or that area. But if you have the driving passion and the belief and the vision, you can, in a scrappy way, pull together what you need to address anything.
1: So you said that starting the Case Foundation was your big bet, something that you did. Can you talk about any other, either that, why you said that, or any other big bets that you've made?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, my career was spent in technology. Very early in my career, I worked for the first what we would call internet company today. It was called online services back then. And then I was recruited by GE to do something similar for them. And so my life had taken a little bit of an interesting trajectory that I had not planned. And I didn't have the classic resume to work at a big company like GE. And at the time, it was the number one company in the world and everybody wanted to work there. So I really thought I had arrived. So I'd been there a few years, you know, working on the new online service, and I got a call from this. And I had been tapped uh, at, at, and J.P. Morgan, I think is similar. You kind of know when you're on the rise. And I had been tapped for their famous management school, which means you're, you know, really headed to good things in your career. And so I got a call from this tiny little startup down the road, and they asked if I would consider coming to work for them. And For me, I could see that the startup had risk-taking in its DNA, the people, the early people that were putting this together. And at GE, it was more about playing it safe and not taking big risks. And I really had to question if we could break through and build kind of the promise of the connected world if we weren't willing to take those risks at GE. So I made a move and I joined the startup and my friends were horrified people used really high pitched voices telling me what a mistake i was making oh, no. again remember i don't i didn't have a classic resume i didn't have a college degree uh, there were a number of things i was truly odd woman out okay but boy that startup i joined was to become AOL and i never looked back you know we really did drive the internet revolution to reality at one point 50% of all the internet traffic came through AOL at its peak. When I look back, that was both maybe the biggest risk, but also the the biggest big bet I made certainly in my career. And I never looked back or had a second thought about it.
1: So one of the other big things that you write about in the book is embracing failure. What would you say to someone who feels like they want to take a risk, but they might not have the safety net to take the risk? And we see that right now. People are worried about their job security. Maybe outside this company, they have lost their jobs. How can they take that risk without feeling like they're gonna lose everything?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, Sam. And even in the book, as I talk about the importance of risk-taking, I try to put some resources in there that allow people to actually assess their own risk tolerance. And, you know, it's a common question I get, what is measured risk and what is reckless risk? Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's different for everyone. But one thing that is somewhat consistent approach that could be adopted is to do what I call chunk it down. So sometimes you can't take the bet the farm risk, given your personal circumstances, but you can maybe take some steps forward toward an idea or, you know, toward a goal that you have. And if you chunk it down so that whatever you're doing this week or this month, if you fail at it, it's not curtains, no one's suffering, but you're still making progress. And I think that's really important to understand, you know, and I think women are especially challenged. I think that was true before covid and i think it is more true than ever before in this covid time that we're living through where we've seen you know women leave the workforce in droves just because of the disproportionate burdens they have on the home front even still so yes you know it's hard for women sometimes to take the same risk their male counterparts can take but again my answer or my suggestion there is You know, can you begin to chunk it down into steps that maybe you can begin to take? And then when you're ready to take a bigger risk, you're well prepared.
1: Mm, That's great advice. So this past year, we have all purposely been living in our own bubbles to make sure that we stayed healthy and, and we made sure others were healthy. How do we think about getting out there again, getting out of our own bubble, whether it's still in the next few months while we might be in lockdown or you know, hopefully once things go back to normal?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I see sort of a, a little bit of an encouragement. The Reach Beyond Your Bubble really uh draws out work and evidence that says it's actually diverse teams that break through. And when you think about it, you can broaden my perspective because you'll see a problem differently. And you know, I can maybe help you see a downside you don't see to something, you know, it and and it's you put any people together around a table and that's going to happen but the more diverse they are the more that's going to happen and so i think that's why we're seeing research that says companies with diverse teams outperform and you know i just think the reach beyond your bubble was really a clarion call to say if you don't have people different than you around you then you're not going to achieve the full potential of what you can. The evidence is very clear and it always drives me crazy because I think, you know, in America, we're in the thrall of this idea of the lone genius in a garage, but that is not the story of innovation. Story of innovation is when, you know, people come together with different perspectives to either solve problems or chase opportunities.
1: Yeah, we have been really committed to this over the past year and I think if anything, it accelerated a lot of our efforts internally. Um, and so I'm really very proud of that. I think the culture that it's built is remarkable and does have that benefit of getting us to better places with our ideas and our products, and frankly, closer to the customer. We're trying to yeah. resolve the customer. And fill I them. think
0: that's right. And you know, I think I obviously spend a lot of time hanging out with entrepreneurs. And even though I would say this is true of our explorers at National Geographic as well, which is you know, in some ways virtual has allowed connections where if you had to schedule a meeting and go to someone's office, maybe you wouldn't have that opportunity. And we're hearing this from our female entrepreneurs. Of course, the benefit there too is there's a very, you know, sad narrative of through the years as entrepreneurs sit in front of investors, they get hit on, they, you know, they have to put up with a lot of, well, it's a little harder to do that over Zoom. So, I mean, there really are some sort of, uh, there's some bright spots as a result of what has really felt like a constraint during this period.
1: Have you talked to female entrepreneurs or your scientists at NatGeo about do they feel like not being there in person harms them in in any way? In other words, they can't really get into the table or get into the conversation as well when they're remote?
0: Well, you know, I'll take our explorers. I think it's been a really hard year for our explorers because We like to say in our work at National Geographic, we go to the front lines of the unknown. Well, you know, our explorers haven't been able to travel, they haven't been able to get out into the field in the same way that they traditionally do. And so in that sense, That's really taken away, you know, really what they sort of exist for. But what we have been able to do is bring an incredible audience to their work, unlike we ever have before. You know, every month through our National Geographic cable channels, through Disney Plus streaming service, through our magazine, through our social footprint, which is the largest any brand in the world. We touch nearly a billion people a month. And so it's been a great opportunity to bring those explorers in front of people and really get their work, you know, more champions for their work, more excitement around their work.
1: So I'd love to stay with this, stay on the topic of National Geographic and reiterate what you just said, that the brand, reaches hundreds of millions of people around the world, it's a number one social media brand. I mean, that is an unbelievable achievement. So congratulations on that. And I just want to to sink in and I showed you beforehand and I'm going to show this to our audience. I'm a very big National Geographic family. I have the kids products, I have the adult products, and I look online all the time to information. To me, this brand really stands for knowledge, science, innovation. What do you see out there as how others respond to the brand, particularly now?
0: Uh, I mean, we've been so so fortunate through this covid period now some of our businesses have entirely shut down for instance our expeditions that we take people out on on our ships and on land that business has, has shut down but in other cases we've really thrived so we realized right away that parents and students and teachers were suddenly going to have to learn how you know to learn virtually well, you know, we have a rich treasure trove of assets that we were able to bring to life. We had been on a three year strategic plan to achieve more of a virtual learning kind of platform than we'd had. And that sort of became a reality within weeks. And so unbelievable usage of our educational resources, et cetera. But really, across the board, we have seen people engage with the geographic in ways that are just you know, really amazing. And just this week or this month, we passed 150 million Instagram followers. So it's exciting. But I will say, Sam, we are celebrating this month, our 133rd anniversary at National Geographic. And we had 33 founders in 1888, who really laid out a wonderful vision and mission but we as an institution evolve just like nature and culture does. And so the kind of people that are both in the field and telling the stories are dramatically different than and more diverse than we've ever seen before. I'm really convinced with the great opportunities around exploration and science. If our founders were here today, they would agree there's never been a more exciting time for our work. I'm certain of it. You know, when I became chairman, the Explorer class was 80% male. Today, it's 51% female. And these women are, you know, astrophysicists and anthropologists and just unbelievable contributors to our work.
1: Oh, we're so happy to hear that. Those are the numbers we like to hear and we been on the move. I bet, you know, for the earlier days when the institution was thinking about do we use color photography? That was a debate, right, back in the day. And now you're online publishing real-time COVID statistics globally, which is such a tremendous asset. It's a really fascinating evolution. And to see an organization come into the digital age in such a big way, I think is terrific.
0: Yeah, and I think we've been very fortunate in that risk-taking is in our DNA as an organization. And, you know, that what you just referenced really was a critical moment that would have made or, I think, broken our future because the board did not want to introduce color photography or photography at all with the belief that it was a fad and that it wouldn't be considered serious science. And it really became quite a row in the boardroom. And ultimately, was Alexander Graham Bell, who was our second president, who said, you know, I think we're going with photography. And suddenly, everyone fell in line. But yeah, look where we are 133 years later, right? I mean, it is amazing. I can't even imagine our work without being able to bring it to life in the way we have with our, you know, rich photography assets.
1: We'd love to talk to you about the Case Foundation's work around entrepreneurship, uh, but particularly about making sure that it's more inclusive. Can you tell us some of
0: the things that you're doing to really foster that? Sure. Well, you know, when we talk about our work, the Case Foundation is really only one entity. We like to talk about using all the arrows in our quiver. And that means using our personal networks, our investments. um, Yes, our philanthropy. But again, that's one part of what we'll do. It's kind of trying to bring it all, if you will. So in this space, both as an investor and as a champion for female entrepreneurs, we've really done a lot. You know, one of the things that we're excited by is the growing number of accelerators that are coming out for women. And I think a really great story is one called Hello Alice, which today has more than a 260,000 small business owners that work with them. But if you look at their work since COVID, they understood very personally what many of these women and Black entrepreneurs were going through, and they've done a tremendous amount to bring grants and support, but they were always designed to be a virtual accelerator, and that may seem long before COVID when we were all virtual, right? Mm -hmm. And so that gave them really a strategic edge as, you know, they sort of have those what we call COVID tailwinds to a certain extent, given the strong network that they have. I was a, among the first investors in them and continue to champion for them because I think that can be transformative in giving women opportunities. But yeah, I try to write and profile the great contributions of women entrepreneurs. Um, and I've put out a few pieces this year that you know some of your people listening could refer to if they have an interest.
1: I'd love to talk about another big initiative that you're working on. You're co-chairing the American Women's History Initiative at the Smithsonian Institution. Would you talk about the goals for what you'd like to occur there?
0: Sure. Well, first of all, I have to say, it's really exciting work, just like my work at National Geographic. So the Smithsonian, many people don't know, uh, has 19 museums, Mm -hmm. okay? And they really are considered what we call the nation's attic, okay? And in some ways, the nation's archive, too, across various disciplines. This initiative sets out with one goal in mind, and that is to make sure we are adequately capturing the unbelievable contributions and achievements of women through time in America. And we shouldn't have to say that, but it's actually, it, it is a very intentional effort to open up the archives and look across fields and say, were the contributions of women left on the cutting room floor? Because that's actually not uncommon, where a woman might have been key to a contribution, but the man got the focus and the record for doing it. And then we're going to our museums and looking at everything, all the exhibitions, and saying, are we properly representing the contributions of women in what we exhibit? And it's been really great, exciting work. And I will say to anyone listening to this, that there is an opportunity, if you feel like you know some sort of untold stories feel free to bring them to our attention. The Smithsonian website has a focus on the American Women's History Initiative, and you can go there. And and we've done some hackathons where we've brought in people to really try to unearth the great stories. Uh, So I feel like it is actually work that will have importance for a long time to come.
1: So I think like many people, um, one of the exhibits at the Smithsonian, which is the first lady's dresses and, and things that they wore. Um, that is one thing that stands out to me when I think about women representing there. So I'm very much looking to other things that we can celebrate and bring to light, right? Other right. than those clothing. Yeah. Are there any interesting stories you found so far or paths you've started to go down?
0: Someone I didn't know at all, despite my career in tech, I wrote about in the book and her name is Dame Stephanie Shirley. And I would make a bet that most of the people listening to this have never heard that name. So she was born in Austria and was part of the kindersport transfer to the UK to save children during World War II. Over 100,000 Jewish children were uh, were saved through this program. So she was uh, sent to the UK. She clearly had special capabilities from a very early age. She was quite talented at math. And she was given special permission to go to the boys' school so that she could develop her math talent. But right out of high school, she got hired by the then postal system to actually design computers. So she started going to the equivalent of college and spent many years going to school at night. And in 1959, founded her own software company it grew to be remarkably successful hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and you know it's just a story of someone that was there before i got started in technology that i find very inspiring you know she went on to become one of the great philanthropists i think she didn't retire till she was you know close to 70 and she's been you know so celebrated by the uk as one of its most important citizens but most of the world doesn't know her story and she was there in tech long before many men were, and it's a great story.
1: Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's a wonderful reminder. So I want to get back to one theme from your book, which I think is so important right now, which is acting with urgency. We are at a moment in time where we are urgently trying to get vaccines out around the world, urgently trying to get this pandemic under control. People themselves might be, again, stressed out and wondering where we go next. What do you feel like we need to do to act with urgency in this moment?
0: Sure, Sam. Well, let's go back to where we started, right? Which is we're all seeing challenges in front of us and perhaps opportunities specifically tied to this time that we're living in. That principle of let urgency conquer fear, I think of Martin Luther King Jr.'s words who called it the fierce urgency of now. And why is that important? Because the very thing that may drive you crazy, the very thing that may make your stomach churn might be the very thing where you can find your fearless moment. You know, if that's talking to you, if you're unsettled about something, what can you do about it? Or how can you help enable somebody else to do something about that? That is really letting urgency conquer fear. It's having fear, looking it right in the eye and pushing through to bring change.
1: I love that, it's inspiring to me. I hope it inspires our audience here. So thank you for that. Jean, can you share with us some of the leadership lessons you've learned over the course of your career and what really resonated with you?
0: Sure. Well, you know, Sam, it's interesting because I think that from what I observe and certainly what I try to practice, is deep listening is a really important skill, I think, of a great leader. And there's hearing and there's listening. (laughs) And I think those that are really intentional about listening to those around them can bring just an informed leadership that, that is unique. The other area is really authenticity. And you know, I often teach MBA classes and I sometimes start with my failure resume. And I do that on purpose because I think as people advance in life, you know, they kind of sweep the failures under the rug. They're not talking about them. And we do a disservice to the next generation when we do that. I mean, because if they can see that we had failures along the way, then when they come up against a failure, Maybe they won't feel like, oh, it's over. Right. And I remember in my younger years before I had many accomplishments under my belt, having those moments because I hadn't heard a lot of leaders talk about they had stumbled, they had failed along the way, but they got back up and, you know, nine times out of 10, you get back up stronger and better. And so I think that's really important as a quality and a leader.
1: I love that you just mentioned your failure resume. I mean, on the one hand, that sounds so absolutely terrifying to list out all of your failures. On the other hand, there might be something really cathartic in that too, to
0: acknowledge them. Now, in full disclosure, mine doesn't go into my personal failures. I really feel more comfortable staying in the long list of professional failures. (laughs) I
1: love that. I'd love to know your thoughts on being a lifelong learner. You know, as an adult, how do you stay relevant and make sure your skills are up to date? But also, what can we adults do to help children, especially girls, uh, to really love the STEM areas?
0: Yeah, you know, for me personally, I've been a lifelong learner. I mean, I, they're just, my, my kids used to joke that, Mom, you're interested in everything. You're even interested in dirt. And then one of the stories I told him, Be Fearless, is about this guy who, you know, did a lot of uh, study in farming around soil. And so it turns out I am interested in dirt. But I do constantly learn. So, for instance, I've used this time in quarantine to be studying Spanish. And I feel like it's so important to always have something new that's helping you grow as a person. And I tell a story in the book about having a point in my life when someone asked a very pointed question about whether I had only taken on things I knew I would be good at. And so not only now do I try to learn new things, I try to take on things that I actually don't think I can be great at. And it's such a great feeling then when you can actually master something that you doubted yourself or your own abilities.
1: And what do you think we can be doing to really encourage our girls to pursue science, math, and technology?
0: Yeah, well, one thing I would say is Check out National Geographic. You know, we just this week literally announced our young explorers and the kind of work that young women are doing around the world. We're funding and spotlighting a lot of it is so inspirational. And I think, you know, if you're into science, even if you're not, if in the fields of science, tech, innovation, it doesn't matter. There are models there where, you know, the people doing the work in the field can look like a girl no matter where she's from, okay? And I think that plays a really important role. The other thing is mentoring. You know, I think no matter where you are in your life and that whole spectrum, if you don't have someone that you're reaching back to bring up and bring along and introduce these ideas about Have you thought about starting a business? You know, have you thought about engineering as a skill for yourself? Have you thought about going to a coding camp? I mean, there's lots of ways without really feeling like you have to dedicate half of your life to mentoring that even in brief conversations, we can lift women up. And I think that's just so important. You know, the engineering numbers are still really, really problematic in terms of the number of men versus women. We know that women are outperforming men in college and universities. We just, we need to equip women with that confidence and that vision that they can do whatever they aspire to do.
1: Jean, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so great to hear your views and to hear about the fantastic work you're doing in so many areas.
0: Well, thank you, Sam, for your leadership and thanks to J.P. Morgan for the opportunity to have me today and for all of those who joined us. It was a real joy.
1: I am so grateful to Jean for joining us today. I hope that her remarks have inspired you to start where you are and to take a risk on an idea that you've been thinking about. We have a stacked slate of episodes ahead of us. So I hope you return for our next conversation. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., is a member of the FDIC.